0: is stating. Now this has to do with what we find in verse 15. Look at the latter part of verse 15 again, lest you lose the connection here of what's being stated. Uh, We'll read the whole verse again. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. So here in verse 10 again, we're looking at what uh, Edom has done, what Esau's offspring have done concerning uh, Israel, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, Jacob, those who were Jacob's offspring. In Genesis 27, 41, we find this to be true. And we looked at these verses, I believe, on last week. But we're just going to mention the references tonight. Ezekiel 25, 12-14, Joel three nineteen, Amos 1, 11. All these passages are, are emphasizing this truth of Esau's or Edom's uh, acts of cruelty or passivity towards uh, the people of God. Rather than helping them, they were not helping them or they were even rising up against Israel. And within this verse in Obadiah, that is verse 10, We find the Lord's absolute declaration of utter judgment and destruction upon Edom. At the latter part of the verse, he says, And thou shalt be cut off forever. That is absolute judgment. That is absolute uh, uh, condemnation upon these people. And then in verse 11, we continued, In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. The confederacies against Israel, as we saw last week, were actually rebellion against the Lord and his chosen people. So obviously, just as it is today, um, the world, uh, the enemies of the cross, the uh, enemies of the gospel, the enemies of Christ, Satan himself, he cannot touch God, he cannot touch the Lord Jesus Christ, so what will he do? He will attack all those who are representatives, who are ambassadors of Christ and on his behalf those who are ministers of righteousness. Of course, the enemy is going to rise up against those who would represent truly the Lord Jesus. Again, I remind you of our Lord's words to his disciples when he reminded them or warned them and stated that he said, don't forget, remember that if if the world hates you, it first hated me. And, And the implication, of course, in all that is that the reason that they would hate you is because of me. That's the whole point. So they hate us not because of our personalities or because of, of uh, that we, we are churchgoers. Or, no, they hate us when Christ is in us. And so when, the, when they are reminded of Christ, when the righteousness is being demonstrated and lived through our lives, of course, then the world is, is against that. They are the enemy of the righteousness of Christ. And so the confederacies, those who rose up against Israel, such as Edom and others, the pagan and, 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 and Gentile nations, were actually exercising rebellion against the Lord Himself as they were against His people. Verses 12 through 14, we saw last week. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger, neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Within these three verses... We see God's indictment upon Edom and the Lord explains his harsh judgment against Edom and does so with detailed explanation of Edom's guilt, not only against his brother, but against the Lord, again, as we previously mentioned. For one, to stand and act against God's people is to declare opposition against the Lord himself. And we saw on uh, last week that the multiple times we see here where neither shouldest thou, or thou shouldest not, uh, neither shouldest thou, over and over, neither shouldest thou. We find this to be stated throughout these verses because the Lord is recalling to mind... Those actions against of edom 's actions against israel and he 's saying, "When you did this, you shouldn 't have done this and so he 's recalling to their memory and to their mind in this prophecy of his judgment upon them and their actions that cause such judgment to to absolutely be deserved now men are, are obviously by nature of adam 's sin we find ourselves under the wrath of God, even in conception, as david said in, in Sin did my mother conceive me, and, and the scripture goes on to tell us as well that we were shaped and informed in iniquity. And so the point is, we have a inherent, we have an inherent sinful nature. That abides within us just by virtue of being born into this world. So all men are under the deser- are deserving of the wrath of God. There's no question about that. But here, God is pointing out to Edom their actions, their willful acts of rebellion against Him and against His chosen way, against His provision and against his chosen people and therefore he calls them out and says you'll be cut off forever this is this is your sin this is what you've done and let me remind you of this truth even as we consider this this evening again in review from last week that we need to be mindful that the lord will faithfully confront us and confront mankind in general and confront believers with our sin he does not let sin just go without being dealt with Um, God is not passive concerning sin. And we'll look a little bit into that further this evening. But God is not passive concerning sin. Though many may think that he is, he truly is not. And we'll see that unfold as I mentioned. So within the introduction of our study of this prophecy... Uh, some weeks back, I pointed out that there are two major divisions within the prophecy. And verse 14 concludes that first division. Verses 1 through 14 is the first division. And within this division, the Lord pronounces the outpouring of his judgment and wrath upon Edom specifically. But then the second division begins in verse 15, which we've read this evening through verse 21, the remaining portion of the prophecy. And within this division, the day of the Lord, of the final judgment and the future establishment of God's kingdom is foretold. Over the past uh, five weeks, we've examined the first division, which consists, again, of verses 1 through 14. And tonight, we begin our study of the second and final division of Obadiah's prophecy, which includes these last verses, 15 through 21. Now, the second division regards, again, not only God's judgment against Edom, though that's emphasized in the first 14 verses, but also, including Edom, it includes the ultimate and final judgment of the Lord upon all those who are his enemies. Let's look again at verse 15 together. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. So this isn't just speaking of Edom now, though it includes Edom. It's not just Edom being spoken of. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Now, all the heathen is talking about all those who are unregenerate, all the wicked, if you will. But yet, as thou hast done, again, again, is specifically, I believe, referring to uh, particularly referring to Edom itself, though it would still include all the, all the heathen and all the wicked by large. So as we begin to, as we begin to dis- dissect this verse, verse 15, I want to refer, obviously, to other passages of Scripture. Let's begin at looking at the first part of this verse. For the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord refers to God's ultimate and final judgment upon the wicked. Now that does not mean it's a literally a one 24 hour period moment necessarily, but there will come that time where there is the last 24 hours of time. That is true. But yet the day of the Lord is the final judgment, the absolute judgment of God upon the world, upon the earth, upon the wicked. And when the fullness of God's judgment is executed, the world will be destroyed and the wicked will perish without exception. The following are some of the references made to this day of judgment in scripture, not all of them by any means. But Ezekiel 30, 2 through 3, and this is going to give you a better insight into the day of the Lord. And by the way, before we even read these verses, let me remind you, when you go to some of the New Testament passages, even such as 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll find that this is mentioned as well. And this is what it's talking about. It's referring to this day, this moment in which absolute judgment will be poured out. So you'll find in Ezekiel 32 and 3, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord God. How ye, woe worth the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day, it shall be the time of the heathen. That's talking about the judgment of God upon the heathen. Joel chapter 1 verse 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Amos five eighteen and 20, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord, to what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Verse 20, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. Now that's pretty dismal. And by the way, notice what's being stated here. When it talks about darkness, that doesn't just literally speak of there being no presence of light in terms of like no sun, so on and so forth. But might I say to you more importantly, there is eternal darkness that will result as the day of the Lord is accomplished so there will be eternal darkness there will there will be the absence of the revealed presence of god among even the heathen let me say it to you like this in the lake of fire for instance it's not that god is not capable of being present it's that his presence will not be revealed or made known at all to those who are in eternal judgment and punishment In the sense that they will not know any comfort, any grace, any mercy. The presence of God will be, they'll be reminded of the presence of God eternally in his judgment. In his wrath. In other words, in eternity no man will be without absolute understanding and knowledge that it is a holy, righteous, and just God that has executed this wrath upon them. No man will be wondering why he is where he is or why he suffers as he suffers. No man will be left in the dark concerning the, the reason as to why he is perishing. It will be very clear, but yet there will be no revelation of God's comforting presence or God's light or God's mercy or God's grace or God's love that will be made known to those who are perishing. They will know nothing of that, but they will be reminded that there is a God and his wrath They are abiding under for all eternity. And just to prove that further, remember, uh, just to clarify any, any questions about what I'm stating, does the scripture not clearly state at least twice that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will be aware that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he is and that it is all to the glory of God the Father. They will not be ignorant. And yet they will know nothing of the comforting presence of God. Zephaniah one fourteen through 18. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Again, that's absolute judgment. When I say absolute, I mean complete, perfect judgment. Then there's passages in the New Testament as well. Again, not that this is all of them, that refer to the day of the Lord. Acts 2.20. This, of course, to give you the context, is the day of Pentecost. Remember, the day of Pentecost was not just a one-time event. This is the true day of Pentecost in which all the previous feasts of Pentecost were shadows of this true fulfilling day in which the Lord would indwell man through the giving of his spirit, the birth of the conception of the church, if you will, the church being birthed as the Holy Spirit indwelled man. And Peter is preaching on this day, of course, and he quotes Joel's prophecy when he says the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come." Before that final absolute judgment, all this happens. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22 and 23. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. I'm sorry, verses 2 and 3. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. obviously conclude that the day referred to is that of God's final and absolute perfect judgment as he pours his impending wrath upon all unbelieving men without any mercy being shown whatsoever. God will judge. Those who remain in unbelief, rejecting God's provision in Jesus Christ, will be thrust into eternal wrath in the judgment of God. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was, no, was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. And whosoever was not found, written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. So we see here clearly again that at the end of this time, when judgment has absolutely come upon the earth, that those who are in unbelief will all be cast into the lake of fire. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Hell is consumed by the lake of fire. Listen here closely. The lake of fire is eternal. Hell will be consumed within the lake of fire. But the lake of fire is absolutely eternal. However, this day will also usher into reality the eternal kingdom of our God and Christ. And we see that here in Obadiah. In fact, let's look at here. We see in verse 15. Let's just skip ahead a little bit. Read verse 15 with me again. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. And then he gives more description of that. But then look at verse 21. And Savior shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And the kingdom shall be... The Lord's. So just as, as there is an absolute destruction and judgment upon the wicked, there is an eternal kingdom of God, which is being alluded to here in Obadiah's prophecy. And so we see that this day will usher into reality the eternal kingdom of God and his Christ. In other words, at this time, God will fulfill his eternal redemptive plan, and all tears will be wiped away, and all those who have come to believing faith in Christ Jesus will spend an eternity in the presence of Of the glory of God. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. So the day of the Lord. That's what, where Obadiah begins in verse 15 in this new second last division of the book. For the day of the Lord. This day is a day in which men will be judged. All men, and it's an inescapable judgment. There will be no cry, or there will be plenty crying out for mercy, but that that, mer- that cry for mercy will fall on deaf ears concerning the God of heaven. He will not listen to those cries. He will not heed those cries. He will not give ear and, and lend ear to them. This is judgment. But then he goes on to say, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Now, multiple times already, even in the Old Testament we've re- we've read, where the day of the Lord is near. Do you, not, do you not recall that? We read passages where it talks about how near the day, and it comes near, and it's about to happen. That's Old Testament. The passing of time, as we understand with our finite minds, is a very complex matter. It is common practice for man to view time subjectively and to use, or usually in relation to his own lifespan. And since we occupy such a small portion of time during our entire lifespan, our viewpoint as mankind is often limited and our judgment of the length or brevity of any given span of time is very subjective. In other words, let me summarize by saying, what we may consider to be a long time is really only a speck from the perspective of eternity. And the problem is we don't view things from an eternal perspective. Now, we can have a, an eternal mindset or perspective concerning spiritual truths and matters, but as we view our own lives, we, we gauge things by passing time. That's how we measure even our own lives. And so we look at things as taking a long time or being far away. And here, multiple times, the day of the Lord is mentioned as though it, it's, it, we're on the cusp of the day of the Lord. And yet, how many, how many centuries have passed since this was written and the prophecy was given. And we look at that and go, wow, that's been a long time ago. From our perspective, when we consider our lifespan to be 100 years or less in almost every case. So when you look at your lifespan to be possibly a century, very few live up to that point or beyond it, very few, but some. But when you consider your life to be 100 years or less, then you think of centuries of time as being a long time ago because you're subjectively viewing it from the perspective of your own lifespan. So we view it and say, well, wait a minute. The day of the Lord is near, and yet here we still are. Judgment is coming, but here we still are. But this isn't written from a man's lifespan's perspective. This is the prophecy God has given, which is absolutely true. The problem is not that it's not near. The problem is our perspective of being near is skewed. So we don't understand this due to our own subjectivity. And and we, and we don't understand how that could be near when it seems like such a long time for us. The statement in verse 15 is near upon all the heathen is one, again, which may seem difficult to understand, yet... It's only because we're viewing it from the subjective viewpoint of time from our perspective. So this was written, Obadiah was written, some 2,500 years ago. And yet, the day of the Lord has yet to come to pass. Simon Peter addressed the same matter in the New Testament. And we read a portion of this a moment ago. But how men will doubt God's word and God's promise. 2 Peter 3, 3-8. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Whereby, God, whereby the world that was then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Come out the flood. But the heavens and the earth, which are now... By the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now let's stop there for just a moment, because notice what Peter is doing. He's addressing the error and the false premise of such statements to begin with. For men say, such as from the time of the beginning of time or creation, things continue as they were. And then Peter brings up, no, wait a minute. Even that is a false assumption or a false premise, because the earth was consumed by water and completely destroyed, but yet the heaven and earth that we see today, the heavens as they exist, and the earth that we see today, which exists, in reality are kept and preserved by God until the final day of judgment upon which all will be consumed by fire. So Peter is pointing out the error at the very beginning of their statements because they say, oh, it's always been this way. Well, no, it's not. By the way, let me interject something here that you may or may not have ever considered. I don't know how many of you have traveled or how far you've traveled, but often I know even if you look online, on TV, or you traveled and have seen these things personally, and you've witnessed them, and you look and go, wow, that's just amazing, God's creative work. And you look at the world as it exists today, and the landscape as it exists, naturally speaking, and many times you look, and even like when you look into the canyons of, of the West, if you will, and all the things that, the uh, the mountains, the grandeur and beauty of the mountains and such, and we look and go... Wow, look at this beautiful world that God's created. But let us remember something. We are seeing the remnants of a world that God judged. This is not even how God created it. What we're looking at is the leftover from the judgment of God in the flood. And yet there's still beauty to to behold, obviously, but this is not how it was. When God created it, things have radically changed. And Peter addresses that even right here. He says, men say, oh, since the beginning, things are just always continuing as they've always been. Well, not really. But yet the present world and present condition is preserved by God until the final day, until the final day of judgment. Now look at verse eight, because remember, he's beginning by stating the scoffers, the ones who say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the beginning of time, things have continued as they have always been. Verse 8, but beloved to the believers, he's saying, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, Peter is using what is grammatically referred to as a simile, of course. It's a comparison using like or as. So a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. So he's not literally saying that one thousand years is one day with God. Obviously, There are no days with God because he does not live bound by or within time. He is living in the ever-present, eternal now. And he's always lived there and dwelled there. And so God is not bound and limited by time. But yet, for our understanding, the simile is given. So just for our understanding, let's pause and look at Peter's statement and understand what he is trying to convey to us. Obadiah was written 2500 years ago so based on peter's analogy which is only there to give us some understanding god promised the final day of judgment only two and a half days ago based on that analogy so we're going this is 2500 years But what we view as a large span of time to go back to where I began concerning this statement that is made of the day of the Lord near upon all the heathen. From our perspective and our point of uh, of view, we look at this as being an extremely long amount of time, but this is a speck. Just a, a minute speck in regard or relation to eternity, in which God dwells. God's word is eternal. The promises of God's word are eternal. Therefore, one must not view such statements about how near the judgment of God is upon the wicked, as though such statements are written from the perspective of man's lifetime. But it's written from God's eternal perspective. If the word of God is eternal, and the promises of God are eternal, then surely the perspective is eternal not one based on our measurement of time. He goes on to say, verse 15, As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine head, thine own head. The Lord declared that he would do to Edom what Edom had done to others. He would reward them according to their wickedness. In Ezekiel, the Lord prophesied against Mount Seir, which again was a mountain range of Edom. So this is part of Edom. In Ezekiel 5, 1-11, through 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, and prophesy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out my hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Because thou hast, because thou hast had a perpetual hatred and has shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Since uh, sit thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, And cut off from it him that passeth out and him that returneth. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men in thy hills and in thy valleys and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations and thy cities shall not return and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Because thou hast said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it whereas the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will even do according to thine anger and according to thine envy, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee. Do you see what he said? He's saying, I'm going to turn it all back. The tables are going to turn on your head. What you've desired to do, I'm actually going to make that out of you and you'll be an example, and I will be known among my people. The scriptures clearly speak of God's just judgment upon the wicked, and that he will repay according to the deeds of men in the New Testament. Romans 2, 5 through 11. But after that hardness and impenitent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-do, doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. The Scriptures further speak of God's faithfulness to reward every man according to his deeds in Psalm 62, 11, and 12. God has spoken once, twice, Have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. For thou renderest to every man according to his work. And then Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. What we're seeing here is that the judgment and wrath of God upon man is well-deserved. According to his works. Here's your wickedness. Here's my indictment against you as he's already... Laid out his indictment against Edom, against Esau's offspring, and here his judgment is going to be poured out upon them. Now, before Esau ever did anything wrong at all, he was still worthy of the judgment of God by virtue of being Adam's seed. That's absolute truth. There's no way around that. No man deserves mercy. No man deserves grace. No man deserves to be eternally with the Lord. It is always grace by which we are granted access to God and will have an eternity with the Lord only by his grace. But yet, God's saying, okay, look, here are the evidences of your wicked, sinful nature, and here are your sins, and I lay these against you, and I'll reward thee accordingly. The day of the Lord is both certain and near. And while men mock the promises of God, as Peter mentions, they abide all the while under the impending wrath and righteous judgment of God. Now, here's the beauty of this the beauty of all of it is that every time that you find the wrath of God executed and present, do you know what else you find? You find the grace and mercy and love of God extended to others. And any time you find the love and mercy and grace of God extended to, to men, you know what you find? His wrath is also present upon others. Think of the multiple times, even in the, Paul's epistles, where he references such. Even in Ephesians chapter 2, think about that for a moment. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, wherein he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. <laughs> what, what a beautiful picture and portrait and reminder again that where there is this judgment of God upon mankind, there is this mercy and grace and love of God that has been extended to man as well. And, and, and not only extended, but bestowed upon those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is a God of wrath. God is a God of judgment. But God is also a God of mercy and grace and love to those who know Him. So the day of the Lord is certain. It's absolute. And there's much to be said about that and much to be said concerning the eschatological implications of the day of the Lord and how we find it in Scripture in relation especially to uh, in 2 Thessalonians. It's very interesting as you study that out. But the day of the Lord is is a day of absolute judgment in which God's wrath will be poured out. But you know what we do as believers? We stand in absolute confidence that our Savior is sufficient in delivering us from such a day. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. But at the same time, I'll mention, and I'm finished, let us also be mindful that those who abide under such wrath are no more deserving of that wrath than are we. So as we would declare the gospel, as we would proclaim the gospel, let us be mindful, it's only grace, the unmerited favor and kindness of God that has delivered us out from under his wrath, else we also would perish. And so that should cause us to have a compassion and an awe of the judgment of God against such, even as Obadiah did when he spoke of of Esau being cut off, and the manner in which he was cut off, and those exclamatory statements in the previous verses of Obadiah's prophecy concerning the judgment of God. There is no one, I'm very much aware of this, there is no one abiding under the wrath of God, whether they are in eternity right now, or whether they are living life in this world, or yet to come into this world and live life. There is not one single soul that is more deserving of the wrath of God than I. And there's not one single soul that's more deserving of the wrath of God than are you. And so if we've been delivered out from under such wrath, does God not deserve our praise and our worship, our submission unto him and our thanks? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word and